Welcome to a special episode of the Global Dispatches podcast. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And each day this week, we are bringing you live coverage from the 76th United Nations General Assembly. The annual opening of the UN General Assembly is always one of the most important weeks on the diplomatic calendar. And this year, the podcast has partnered with the United Nations Foundation to provide listeners with daily news and expert analysis to give you the context you need to understand what is driving the diplomatic agenda at the United Nations during this key week. We are recording today's episode live at 4 p.m. in the afternoon on Wednesday, September 22nd. The big diplomatic event today occurred on the margins of the UN General Assembly in a COVID summit convened by the White House. Dozens of world leaders, members of civil society and the private sector participated in this virtual event. Significantly, the summit endorsed a target for a 70% vaccination rate among people of all countries by the time the UN General Assembly convenes next year. We will be discussing some of the key outcomes and overall significance of this White House summit later in the show with Kate Dodson, Vice President for Global Health at the United Nations Foundation. Other events of note today at the United Nations or on its margins included a meeting on the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And here, the World Food Program Executive Director David Beasley warned participants that unless additional funding is provided, the World Food Program will need to cut food rations for 3.2 million people by October and 5 million people by December. The World Food Program issued an even graver forecast for the situation in Afghanistan, where it said that recent household surveys suggested only 5% of households in Afghanistan have enough to eat every day. And that news came ahead of a G20 meeting on Afghanistan that is ongoing as I speak. These are, are just a few notes from the day that I thought this audience might find useful. There is a lot more happening around the UN today than I could conceivably summarize in this brief introduction. But of course, we aspire to cover as much as possible from the UN throughout this special week of programming. I would now like to introduce my first guest today, the Foreign Minister of Panama, Erica Muinez. Madam Foreign Minister, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, Madam Foreign Minister, I know that this is just an exceedingly busy time for you, and it is precisely because this is such an intense moment on the diplomatic calendar that I am keenly interested in speaking with a diplomat of your stature. I am just curious to learn your approach to UNGA. Can you briefly take listeners behind the scenes and share your process for how you schedule your time this week and how you identify the diplomatic priorities that you seek to pursue this week? Sure. Um, I would start with first you decide which ones are the priorities that you're focusing on. For us, it has been climate, the climate crisis. There is the irregular migration and the migration crisis that we are facing. And the third one for us is the gender disparities and how to make sure that there is a gender lens in all of our agendas. So we have those three main guiding uh, lines. And from there, 
you have sort of the multilateral events and uh, you pick from those the ones that will be focusing in that agenda including side events and then you strategically choose uh, bilateral meetings uh, with certain countries where you want to advance that agenda and uh, I, I, sorry go ahead well what's a strategic uh, bilateral meeting that you're holding uh, this week so we, we just finished one with the U.S. I was uh, at the mission of Singapore, another example of strategic uh, bilateral encounter or engagement that we're doing. So we pick the ones that are helping us with the agenda that we want to put forward on, on vaccine distribution, et cetera. So um, at the end, you make sure that they're aligned. I, I just mentioned that we were hesitant as to how that we would proceed because of the restrictions of COVID and certain meetings happening virtual. And it is in fact that some of the meetings that have held from New York still are through Zoom, but there are a lot that we've been able to hold uh, in person. So it's been good. And I feel that it's been very productive. Do you find the in-person element a little more productive uh, than doing things over Zoom? I mean, is there like an added element that being in person helps you pursue your, your agenda you know, by being face to face with other diplomats? To me, it makes a, a complete difference if you're in person when, when you're not. I will say that it gets to a point when you're in Zoom meetings that every single minister will read their, their speech and then they tune off and nobody even listens to each other. You know, you are just focused on like your own speech and then you move on. So there's no real uh engagement or or sharing of ideas so you just perpetuate your own ideas not exchanging so i think it makes a a, a, a huge difference to be in person for this type of work and to actually achieve meaningful change to say the same things over and over they're, they're nice sound bites so you know i support women but what are you doing about it i am concerned about the climate crisis everybody says the same well what are you doing and how we're doing it together because i think that the challenges that we're facing today, what it's evident is that you cannot solve it on your own. So on those speeches that you, or lectures that you go over and over on your, the same things that you're doing, those are great, but how about what are we doing together? Uh, so I know that oceans and ocean health is a key priority of Panama's during UNGA. Can you just tell listeners, what are you doing throughout the week to advance your agenda and priority on ocean health? Yeah, the, it's it's interesting that when we talk about climate, about global warming, people think to think only about forests or reforestation, which is a key component. But a, a huge, huge part of it is also the oceans, and we need to focus more on the oceans and the health of our oceans. Panama is surrounded by waters. We have oceans on both sides. We have one of the main waterways in the world. And on top of that, we have the largest ship registry in the world. So we think that we can do a lot, and we take that as a great responsibility and uh, just recently, I think uh, less uh, about a month ago, we passed um, a law enacting 30% of protection for our oceans. Um, but here's the element that I was mentioning that is not what you're doing on your own. So we protected the part of the marine corridor that goes through Panama and the Pacific. And it, ha it has an enormous amount of biodiversity, it would be uh, wonderful, it would be a great protection, but 
if we do it together with Colombia, with Costa Rica, with Ecuador, then you're protecting the entire corridor and then the benefits for the planet are enormous. So being here and making sure that I reached out to each one of the delegations and we continue that engagement to support that all those countries do the same towards the COP26. So you can see how important it is the face-to-face, -face, the following up and particularly the regional collaboration in, in, in issues such as climate. Is there any sort of specific meeting to that end that you that you would cite as being particularly important this week? Um, well, th there have been several. I mean, I, I'm glad and I keep saying that I, I'm glad that everybody's mentioning climate in their speeches and when they go to UNGA. But how much are we doing together um, and, and collaborating is, uh, to me, the big question mark. So I think that that engagement and being close and actually following up and, and understanding how you're implementing uh, your policies is key. Uh, so we are speaking on the Wednesday of UNGA. Uh, is there any future meeting the rest of the week that you're particularly looking forward to or have a keen interest in advancing, uh, you know, Panama's diplomatic agenda? Um, so we have several that depending on the issue. So I mentioned just uh, this this afternoon, there is an informal meeting of the women ministers. To me, that's particularly important because there are so few of us um, in a continent of 35 countries. There are only four women that are ministers of foreign affairs, only four out of 35. Um, and in terms of regional leaders, the same. So um, coming together and actually showing how few of us are out there and how many more we need so when we're saying that we want the well-being of half of the planet so that's women how come there's just such a few of us uh, in sort of leadership positions and that is not only in the government but also in the private sector so um, for the women's agenda that's to me that's key um, our president, the president of Panama, will be addressed in the United Nations tomorrow in, in the morning. And uh, I think that his message is uh, very interesting because it goes to regardless where you are, left, uh, uh, right, what, what, what the ideology is. The key thing is that we're all going through the same. I can be calling anybody, a colleague from any continent, and the same questions will be. How are you doing on vaccines? What is your economic recovery look like? So there's never been a time in, 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 in our history when we're more together, yet the solutions, everybody seems to be focused on their own vaccines. You're concerned about vaccinating your own. Or once you're done with vaccinating your own, then you start thinking about donating or, or supplying to others. So um, we've done things. We did not fare well as a planet with the pandemic. And it seems that we're going to repeat the same mistakes for next year unless we actually think through how, how we address it um, together. Uh, well, Madam Foreign Minister, I know I have to let you go. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck uh, the rest of the week. Uh, and thank you. Sure. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Bye-bye. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Madam Foreign Minister. I would now like to bring Kate Dodson, Vice President for Global Health at the United Nations Foundation, into the conversation. Welcome, Kate. Hi, Mark. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Well, no, huge thank you to you for spending time with me and the audience on what is like a huge day in global 
uh, health diplomacy. Uh, I want to just dive right into things. We had this major White House summit on COVID. Dozens of world leaders uh, were in attendance. Can you just let us know what were some of the key outcomes from this meeting? Sure, Mark. The UN Foundation had a privilege to join this summit today, which featured uh, representatives from 100 countries, 100 non-state actors, private sector, philanthropy, civil society, um, and 30 of those leaders spoke. So it was um, quite widely attended uh, 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 and really illuminated some key themes. First is that this is the anga of vaccine inequity. Right. We are, as the foreign minister just spoke about, um, it is top of mind for many leaders and certainly was today. And what today tried to do was to get beyond just lamenting where we are in the current pandemic and in the state of vaccine inequity um, and access to all sorts of tools to save lives today and actually push forward, try to align the global community around a set of targets, time bound ones that that leaders can hold each other to mutual account. And I think it largely did that, but you know, we can cover more in, in, in the course of the conversation. On that target, I mean, am I right to be um, intrigued and perhaps cite the significance uh, of the fact that the US government is kind of rallying behind this 70% global target of vaccination around the world, regardless of income of, of the countries. This is something like the World Health Organization has been pushing for a while, but at least to me, this is the first sort of explicit endorsement uh, that I've seen from uh, the U.S. in this kind of gathering. Yeah, as you point out, the Secretary General, the Director General of the World Health Organization, experts around the world have been calling for, and frankly, uh, leaders from low middle income countries have been calling for a set of targets um, to try to bridge this gulf in vaccine access. 10% of the world, no matter where you live, have access to vaccines by the end of September, 40% by the end of the calendar year, 70% by mid-2022. Um, the G7, when all of this energy and all this call to action was put on them in the spring, shied away a bit from being so explicit in that end game target of 70% coverage, no matter where, uh, a person lives um, by mid-2022. So it was significant that just about every G7 country was there at this summit today, universal endorsement for that target of 70% and a commitment to developing a time-bound shared roadmap on how to get there. Platitudes aren't enough. Just saying, you know, it's time to tackle vaccine inequity isn't enough what they're calling for today and what the U.S. is putting its shoulder behind is creating kind of a transparent roadmap for how to get there. Uh, and, you know, that roadmap, I guess, was kicked off by this announcement from the Biden administration of an additional like uh, 500 million doses, I believe, that they were going to purchase from Pfizer and give to COVAX. Um, it, like, I mean, that's that's one step in, in the right direction. But from what you saw today, I mean, is that an achievable target of 70% coverage by uh, UNGA 2022? It's achievable. I think we know that there will be enough supply to reach that target by you know, mid-2022 or by UNGA next year. I think the key challenge is, will the allocation meet 
the needs of all populations in all countries. And that's where we are now, right? So the supply's there, but will the right countries have access to it now, starting today and through the middle of next year? Um, the reality is that 73% of the 5.7 billion doses that have been administered globally have been in just 10 countries. That high-income countries have administered 61 times more doses per inhabitant than low-income countries. So there's a huge gulf to overcome. What I heard today, you know, obviously uh, making headlines is the 500 million incremental dose donation from the U.S. government. So that's on top of the 500 million Pfizer doses they committed at the G7 and on top of the 100 million that they had committed earlier in the spring of principally non uh, Pfizer doses. So that 1.1 billion was touted a lot, right? And that would go a long way, um, but it's not enough. Um, having Prime Minister Modi from India, for instance, talk about resuming exports of India, of vaccines manufactured in India, as well as other commodities manufactured in India, will also be an imperative and I think go a long way. He spoke about that a bit today. I know had foreshadowed that commitment a few days ago. So the building blocks are there. Um, uh, the last thing that I'll mention is that there was announced today a new European Union-U.S. government partnership on vaccine supplies, supply chains, and in collaboration to first enhance transparency in the flow of goods and supplies that allow for vaccines to be, you know, doses and vials ready to ship all the kind of component parts and pieces um, and export restrictions and other limitations have impeded the free flow of goods in the past. So that was important. But probably more importantly, and we can talk a little bit more about this as well, was a joint commitment to increase the support to regional manufacturing and production capacities, especially in Africa, but in other low and middle income countries. That's not only a path out of this pandemic, but obviously a path towards increasing health security and resilience against future threats. Um, so two other things caught my eye from the White House readout and the fact sheets that they were emailing to reporters uh, during the day. One uh, is a multilateral entity I had never heard of before called the Global Health Security Financial Intermediary Fund, the FIF. Um, I'm always glad to add a, a new uh, acronym to my lexicon. Uh, what is the FIF? It doesn't currently exist, does, does it? It doesn't. It's a okay. model. So I'm not so I shouldn't feel that guilty that I don't know what it is. You, you haven't missed okay. the boat here, All Mark. Right. Okay, thank you. It's a model for how to try to stimulate a level a new layer of financing, is how one colleague spoke about it today at the summit. Um, tapping the capacities of the World Bank, its ability to provide lending, concessional financing, grant-based financing to countries around the world. It's kind of money management capacity with streams of financing that are generated from countries and governments, ideally not from official development assistance, right? No one wa wants to rob Peter to pay Paul. What we need is incremental financing from countries but also potentially other sources of financing. You can think about kind of novel sources, taxis, taxes or levies. You can think about ways to tap private financing. And the whole intent of this 
FIF, this financial intermediary fund, is that it is in essence kind of a holding capacity that can generate and stimulate incremental new financing to the tune of at least $10 billion that was talked about today and use it to better capacitate um, existing global health players. You know, those are working on the front lines. You might imagine a Gavi, a Global Fund, a World Health Organization, but also countries and regional bodies directly to help fill in the gaps on their preparedness and response capacities. That's things like global surveillance. That's things like manufacturing capacity in kind of geographically diffuse and dispersed ways. Um, all those things could be kind of eligible for financing. And the U.S. government has been pushing this in the form of a fifth, as well, you know, calling it by not just its acronym, by how it sounds, um, since the spring. Uh, well, I, I knew you'd be the perfect person to ask. Thank you. Uh, there is a, a second uh, multilateral platform that President Biden actually mentioned yesterday in his speech to the General Assembly that I saw reiterated today, the Global Health Threats Council. Uh, what What is that? Sure. So that was a notion originally proposed in the spring by the Independent Panel on Pandemic Preparedness and Response. This was the group um, established by the World Health Assembly one year prior in May of 2020, co-led by um, uh, Madam Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, former president of Liberia, Nobel Peace Prize winner, and Prime Minister Helen Clark of New Zealand. Um, their group had proposed this concept of a Global Health Threats Council to address the political leadership gap and the political accountability gap that we're currently suffering from and have for the last 18 months, right? The inability of governments to align, of stakeholders to align in common cause and common purpose purpose um, and to hold each other to account for performance. This is important both, you know, in the intercessional period between pandemics, certainly to make sure that countries are holding each other to account to better prepare themselves for when the next pandemic might strike, but also in the context of in, in a pandemic, right? What's that kind of incremental political leadership tool that should certainly complement existing decision-making forums, you know, the World Health Assembly at WHO, the UN General Assembly, um, but creates additional capacity for that political leadership gap. Uh, lastly, how do you situate uh, the events today at the White House COVID Summit in terms of, you know, broader trends in diplomacy on global health and on COVID in particular? Um, you know, to me, at least, it seems like an assertion of American leadership, you know, Biden, you know, and the Biden administration saying, you know, America is back. Well, to me, this like is what it looks like when uh, America is back. I mean, does, to you, does that mean that like the responsibility for seeing that through and for getting that sort of 70% target perhaps rests uh, disproportionately on American shoulders going forward? Uh, it's a great question. So, the, the UN, it's often said, is only as strong as its member states allow it to be. And multilateral action is only as strong as its member states allow it to be. And I think, so I think US leadership and the US re-engaging in multilateral fora, which this administration has clearly prioritized, is a way to turn multilateralism from a noun into a verb, um, a way to try to build larger coalitions of support. And that's a really, I mean, 
if this pandemic has taught us anything, as the foreign minister has had shared previously, you know, it's that we're, you know, we can't solve complicated problems on our own. It takes collaboration and this pandemic has, has certainly taught us that. So that the U.S. is re-engaging in constructive ways to make multilateralism work is a really good sign. But what I also heard today resoundingly from the heads of state who participated from Africa, from Asia, from, for instance, Vietnam, Indonesia, South Africa, and even Antigua and Barbuda uh, was there, they spoke about having a seat at the table, that decisions around how, how the this, the course of this pandemic will be turned, how we will strengthen collective action solutions and multilateralism has to be formulated with co all countries at the table. And I think there's room to grow there, right? This was a closed door summit with a hundred invitees from government that is certainly significant, but it's not fully inclusive of where I think multilateral diplomacy needs to go in its next turn if we're really going to build enduring solutions to strengthen health security everywhere. Uh, well, Kate, thank you so much for your time. I always I love speaking with you. I always learn from you. Thank you so much for uh, taking time today to, to chat. Well, great to be with you, Mark. Good luck with the rest of the week. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, thank you so much to Kate Dodson and Foreign Minister Erica Muinez for speaking with me today. Uh, we will be back tomorrow for day four of our special UNGA coverage. This will feature news and analysis from a much-anticipated food systems summit. Additionally, Ireland, which holds the rotating presidency of the Security Council, is convening on Thursday a special Security Council meeting on climate security. We will hear from Ireland's ambassador to the UN, Geraldine Beer-Nason, about that meeting, and Richard Gowan from the International Crisis Group will be back for some analysis. Follow or subscribe to the podcast to get that episode as soon as it is published tomorrow. See you then. Today's episode was produced in partnership with the United Nations Foundation. Special thanks to Rajesh Mirchandani of the UN Foundation and to our production team at Revent. If you have a question for me, tips, or comments, please connect with me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to send me an email. And thank you so much to all of you who are sharing this special series with your friends and colleagues who have a professional interest in knowing what is happening at the United Nations each day during this crucial high-level week. We'll see you later, and I'm excited for our subsequent episodes. Bye.